Hi there, welcome to Cold Turkey Podcast. Um, before introducing you to my guest this week, which is Kirby, um, I wanted you to know that, you know, like I appreciate you guys uh, sharing the Facebook page as well as sharing the Anchor hosting uh, website, which hosts the Cold Turkey Podcast. Um, give it a like, give it a review on whatever platform you're listening it to. Um, and I truly, deeply appreciate uh, every one of those comments or there's the Facebook page on which you can write me. And there's also the podcast cold turkey at gmail.com, which you can write me a quick note. Um, this week, like I said, I'm with Kirby, which was um, it was great coincidence to actually have um, my my interview with him while we were at Vet Veterans Day. Um, he's actually a veteran. He's now uh, working on a blog. He works on his own website, which helps uh, fatherless um, men, uh, you know, like kind of wrapping their life around and getting, you know, like getting their life um better and uh, it was such a, a an amazing conversation i had with him and you know like i don't want to waste any more of your time i introduce you to kirby enjoy Kirby, how you doing? Hey Alex, how's it going? I'm doing great. Uh, yourself? Oh, I'm not too bad. It's been a great day so far. It's Veterans Day. I've been spending time with the family, so it's been been a good day. And I've read in your bio that you you're a veteran yourself, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, I'm a U.S. Army veteran, 23 years of service. So, so thanks for your service. Uh, this you. is, you know, like this is it. It shakes me. That day shakes me. Uh, yeah, I mean, like. Thanks. <laughs> uh, I'm going to start You're off welcome. by, you know, like pretty much every of my episodes that starts the same way, you know, which is like, give, you know, draw me a picture of, you know, like, where does it start? You know, like, what's your first contact either by being witness or by proxy that you, you saw substances or that you use yourself? Yeah. So it probably was at conception because I grew up in a fatherless home. And I was conceived when my mother had um, gone out uh, to a party. Her mother was in the hospital for a week and she had run into some challenges with the family where her dad had lost his job and they were in poverty. And they went from a pretty good lifestyle to uh, a life of poverty. Um, and he was working 12, 14 hour days and six days a week and was hardly ever home. And like I said, her mom was in the hospital. She kind of blamed her parents growing up for what happened to her. So that's your grandfather, um, right? Yeah, that's my yeah. grandfather. And so she kind of blamed her parents growing up. And, you know, like any kid would, you know, when you've had your world swept out from underneath you and now you just you don't quite understand why you're living like this. Um, and he had a great job before. Um, just happened to, you know, lost his job to, um, factories and stuff shutting down and stuff like that. And, and so she started rebelling, right. And she was drinking a lot and she ended up going to this party one weekend because her mom was in the hospital and nobody was there. And, um, there was just more than alcohol, there's drugs. And, uh, she, uh, ended up, uh, participating in the drugs that were there and, um, blacked out throughout the entire weekend. And, uh, a few months later, 
she realized that she was pregnant. Wow. And uh, yeah. And so I don't know who my father is, but that was when I was conceived. So um, Where were, when the, were you that's told that? the first experience. When, yeah. What's that? When were you told that? I was told in my 30s when this happened. Oh, in so, your 30s. Um, yeah, in my 30s, because I never knew. So, you know, the interesting side of that story is, is I grew up thinking you know, I was about three years old when my mother got married for the first time. Um, and I had a little sister that was a year behind me. And um, so, uh, my, you know, like I said, my sister's like a year and a half, two years behind me. And um, I grew up and I had this, my, my last name, you know, my name's Kirby Ingalls, but my last name back then was Grider. And, you know, I didn't think nothing of it. My parents got divorced when I was about fourth grade and my mom pulled in the bowling alley and uh, right after their divorce, not long after that. And she was like, I got something to tell you. And I was like, OK, my sister's in the back seat, and you know, and just our house was just like a couple houses over, you know, where we used to live. And now we're living in a trailer park and uh, next to low income housing, because what happened to my mother happened to me through a divorce. We went from upper class family to poverty. Wow. And uh, she's like, Paul's not your real dad. And I was like, what? And she's like, yeah, he's not your real dad. We, you know, you, you have a different dad and we got married when you were about two or three years old and, you know, we changed your last name. And I was like, Oh, okay. You know, and I didn't know how to take that at first, you know, I'm like fourth grade. Right. Yeah. So I go on through my life, you know, and my grandfather's trying to fill the void of me not having a father my whole life. And I didn't even realize it. And so I didn't know much of the story and I just assumed my, my dad adopted me. And so I went through my own divorce when I was in my thirties and, uh, you know, I was like, you know, I, I wanted to know more about my, you know, about my dad and my adoption and things like that. So I asked the attorneys to look into the adoption process and, you know, have the state unseal the process. And uh, lo and behold, uh, the attorney came back to me and said, hey, uh, you were never adopted. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, they just changed your last name at the courthouse with a petition. I'm like, what's going on? So I called my mom and I'm like, what's going on? I was like, he never adopted me. She's like, no. And I'm like, why do you guys tell me that? And she's like, well, you just assumed it. So we just let you believe what you wanted to believe. You started making stories up. And I was like, I was creating my own story. Right. Wow. And I, but I was trying to fill in the gaps, but I was filling in the gaps myself as a young child. And I would continue to tell myself the same story. Like, oh, he adopted me. You know, he's a great guy. You know, he did all these things for me. You know, nobody else, you know, adopted a child that, you know, nobody wanted, you know, and I was just making these stories up to kind of make myself feel good. And I didn't realize it until I was older. And I'm like, wait a minute. He didn't adopt me. No, like, no, we just changed your last name because we didn't want you to feel weird about us having a different name than you did. And I was like, okay. That's <laughs> so crazy. Like, you know, it's like, you know, I'm 30 some years old and somebody just dropped the mic on me. I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. What's going on? <laughs> wow. So I guess yeah. from, from almost from the cradle. Yeah. Um, you're, What's the, you know, like, what's the family environment like? You know, like that. Yeah, uh, so, like yeah if, my grandmother was under a severe depression at the time because uh, my grandfather lost his job and they never recovered financially. And they ended up getting divorced. So they were a broken home. And so my grandfather's dad had died when he was nine years old from a heart attack. So you can see the parental influence was just not quite there, you know, for several generations. Um, and I think that has really had an impact on my family over the years. You know, because parents have a lot of influence in their children's lives, Yep. especially when they're present and engaged. When you have a couple of parents that are not engaged, one that's depressed and not engaging the family, not taking care of children, 
and that's in and out of the hospital. And then another one that's constantly working just to keep ends meet. You got six or seven kids running around the house left to their own devices trying to make things work. You know, so kids grow up a little bit faster. They get involved in things quicker. Um, and that's kind of what happened to me growing up. You know, my parents broken home um, and my mother re got pregnant again after my her and my stepdad, my first stepdad got divorced when I was in fourth grade. And uh, so she remarried. And so we moved out in this new environment and next door was uh, some older boys. And uh, that's when I started participating in drugs and alcohol. Um, Can you elaborate and, on that? Uh, I was, what's that? Can you elaborate on that? Just Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I kind of started a little small. You know, I had a cousin that was a few years older than me, and he would sneak me some cigarettes and stuff when I was 10 years old. So it was like a social thing, right? Yeah. You know, hey, you're real, you know, you're a kid, you're smoking cigarettes, you're cool, you know, you're hiding from your parents. You're a gangster. You know? You're a gangster. Um, <laughs> yeah, right, right. You know, you thought you're Billy, you know, Billy Bad. So, um, <laughs> But then, you know, we had a couple, you know, we slept out in our camper a couple of times and then we snuck some alcohol here and there, you know. And so I started hanging out with the neighbors more and more often at a hog farm. So I was doing, you know, work for the hog farm and they had an older boy that was three years older than me. Um, and uh, he was there and he dropped out of high school and stuff, but he was living at his, in a trailer behind his dad's house. And he was helping his dad while his dad was paying him and keeping him going. And uh uh, at least he was working, being productive, but he was buying pot on the backside. Um, and he was sharing it with me and I was smoking it. Um, and then that led into, um, other things. And so, uh, and, and that you, lasted, you were 10, I was about 12 years old. Okay. So you were 10 when you first started with the cigarette yeah, thing and, I first alcohol, with cigarettes yeah. and alcohol and stuff like that, you know, experimenting, but then, you know, marijuana picked up when I was about 12 years old, I got introduced to that. And, uh, I was actually trying to grow it in my backyard there for a while. That's how heavy I got into it. <laughs> trying to be hemp life again. Um, you know, and, uh, as 14 years old, I was a gangster and uh criminal, but, uh, it was funny because, you know, I said, I just, you know, and I don't know why I started doing it, you know, it's just offered and I did it. And I think it kind of just normalized me a little bit, you know, because growing up without a father and being in a broken home and having a second step dad who was working swing shifts and my mom was working and I got a little babies in the house. I didn't want to be around, you know, because I'm 12 and 14 years older than my youngest brother and sister. And I had a sister that was two years behind me. I was kind of like a loner for the most part. Um, I have to ask and, you, uh, how was cool? I was cool. You know, like, you know, like. I, it was fine. Yeah. You know, sixth grade, I got straight A's. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, like I'm asking yeah. because, you know, like there's, there's like, there's like three things that, you know, like are, are pretty much statics in everyone's life, you know, like and up yeah. until sometimes, but you know, like mm. the, the, the parents, the fraternity, you know, like the brothers and sisters yeah. that are around yeah. you and you covered that. But, you know, like the, the first, in, in most of people's cases, the first outside demonstration of authority comes from school, right? You know, like there's, yeah. it, it is your first relation with an outside mm -hmm. authority, uh, outside of your own parents. Uh, yeah. I think I challenged authority when I was in school. You know, I was pretty good. I was, you know, up until about third grade. When I got through third grade, um, I think I had a natural um, relationship with the faculty and the teachers and everything was good. Um, uh, fourth grade when the ball dropped and my parents got divorced and all that started to happen. And I think I went into a depression. I think I was shocked. I just didn't know what to do with all that information. 
fifth grade, I just started to fall apart a little bit. I even challenged authority and I started making fun of kids in the classroom. I ended up getting swats and stuff um, when they swatch you with a paddle um, named Ralph. (laughs) (laughs) So, so yeah, I got in a little bit of trouble for some of that stuff, but uh, you know, in sixth grade, I had some really good um, teachers there. Um, There was a couple that I was, I was fearful of because I'd seen what they'd done to other students as far as when students acted up. And there was a couple that were very kind and generous and loving and caring like a mother would. And those are the ones that were like, Kirby, look, you know, we know that you're in this, this, um, and I was in a, what they called a, a learning disability class. You know, I had to go for an hour, you know, to get some special study. And the reason why I got put into that, because I was colorblind. And at the time, the school didn't know I was colorblind. Um, I'm red, green, brown. And so when, you know, when they put me in, they didn't think I knew what my colors were. So they thought that I needed extra attention. Yeah. But in the reality is I'm actually colorblind guys. <laughs> <laughs> so the school messed up a little bit, gave me some extra attention. Um, but, uh, you know, there was nothing really wrong because the teachers told me, they're like, look, we don't want you here anymore. You know, when you get into high school and you're in junior high now, you're going to get a lot of peer pressure and you're going to have a lot of stress if you're still in this class. It, kids are going to make fun of you. That's basically what they told me. Wow. They says, you're, you're better than this and we've seen your, some of your testing and you don't belong here. So we need you to get out of here. We need to see good grades. And so I got, I got straight A's in sixth grade. And at the I same myself. at the same time, Kirby, you must have loved that attention. You must have loved. Yeah, I did. You know, like that. You know, like that. I desired it, right? You know, and I got good grades, and people were freaking out. They're like, "What the heck is going on with you?" And I'm like, "And I love the reward. The reward was awesome. You yeah. know, it was just like, just I got that attention for the straight A's, and the classes really weren't that hard. And I think the other aspect of it was is I got away from traditional school, so I was changing classrooms every hour. So I got that break. I got that period where my mind could rest for a minute. You know, you know, if teachers just keep you in the same classroom and change subjects when you're at grade school. Well, in junior high in, in the United States, you change classes. You go to a different environment. You get to exchange and talk to your friends for five or 10 minutes. You know, you get to go to your locker, get a new book, you know, go to the restroom, go back to a new classroom, change environment. So the environment was constantly changing throughout. And I think that helped me academically. Right. Because then I could, you know, change my focus and I wasn't, you know, um, my attention span. Right. Yep. Wasn't long. And so I, I, I needed that. And so, and I think that helped me, you know, and when I was in seventh grade, I was key club, which means I've, you know, I scored with honors. Um, and then eighth grade, I started to deteriorate again because that's when I really, really started getting crazy with the drugs and alcohol. Um, I remember, you know, at some point waking up at a friend's house and uh, these are people that were older, a lot older, like twenties and thirties staying at their house. And I'm in junior high overnight. Um, and junior drinking. high, junior high is how old? Sixth grade through eighth grade. Okay. In the United States. So yeah. I would say like like from thirteen to about yeah. sixteen. Yeah, right. It was all fifteen. Yeah, thirteen to fifteen. Yeah, fifteen. You enter. You're a freshman in high school, and then you get your license and stuff like that. So and, and um, you know, like I, I, for me, there's a question that you know, like um, I need to ask you: Were you hanging out hanging out with with older people because you were actually aspiring to? what they were or, or, or you were looking for, cause it, you know, like yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to tell you like quick story of, you know, like how I found my sponsor, uh, uh-huh. in the fraternities. And he actually asked me, you know, like, why would you want someone, um, oldest, you know, like as I am. And I was telling him, you know, like, I'm, I'm, I'm looking way more at a 
paternal figure, then I'm looking at a fraternal figure. Uh, so there was yeah. someone that had, you know, like a, a good amount of time that, you know, like had values that I love, but he was about my age. And that was not what I was looking for. I was looking for someone that would, even though I have great relation yeah. with my dad, but you know, like, I guess because he's a yeah. great aspiration to me, I, I was looking for that. Um, do you think at that time you were looking up to these people? Yeah, oh, definitely I was. I mean, I was just looking, you know, for an older mentor, right? Somebody to kind of show me the ropes, show me the way, you know, somebody to, to fill the void, the gap in my life, you know. Um, uh, they were just doing things that I wanted to do, you know, and they helped me get jobs, you know, and, and work on, you know, I worked for the road commissioner for one town for a while, and they helped me get that job. So they helped me do things along the way. Uh, but also that in, involved participating in a lot of the activities that they did, you know, and I, I like I said, was earlier, I would wake up at their house and I would walk out and I'm throwing up in the morning and I'm throwing up blood, you know, at that point I started to develop ulcers and stuff, you know, because I was drinking and I was doing drugs heavily. I mean, I was doing so many drugs that it was crazy. I mean, um, I was doing, I, you know, started out with marijuana. I, I smoked crack. Uh, I snorted Coke. I shot up Xanax. I did acid. Um, and, and I you're was just 15 trying it all. and you're 15 for God's sake. Right. Yeah. I'm 14, 15 years old and I'm about to be 16 and I'm doing all Fuck. these things and nobody is paying attention to me and what I'm doing and I'm getting away with it. And, uh, you know, it wasn't a big deal and they were okay with it. These are grown men in their thirties. Are you the, are you the funny center of attention? You're like, I look, look at Kirby. He's so Stone out of his skills. I was just hanging out on the back. I was shy. Uh, I didn't like to have a lot of conversation with people. And I still, I'm still that way today until I get into a room and of a group of people, I will sit back and assess the situation first. And it'll take me 10 or 15 minutes before I warm up. Yep. And be able to start having a conversation. So I was always that person and knew people were being interjected. You know, one of the things, you know, music was a good part of it, you know, what's helped us all connect with each other and um, things like that. But I was just looking for somebody to follow. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I just needed a mentor, you know, somebody to guide me through this life and somebody to give me some attention and treat me like a friend because honestly i felt isolated as a kid and i just didn't connect with the kids in school um for various reasons you know obviously my upbringing and my scenario was much different than everybody else but i just didn't feel like i belonged and when i was with them i felt normal and even when i did the drugs it made me feel normal and i believe it took away a lot of my pain that i was hiding inside that i was not able to communicate because i didn't know how to communicate what was going on. But and nobody really knew what was going on with me internally because nobody ever asked me or talked to me about it. And so I was hiding it all inside. And I think that just numbed everything up for me and allowed me to kind of walk through life um, and get through it. And the fact that you were, uh, you said that you wanted to feel normal was almost like being ignored, but because you were blending mm -hmm. in with that group of older folks. Yeah, right. I mean, and I looked up, I mean, I, I, I just wanted to do the things I wanted to get at. And I think one of the thing was, was I was trying to grow up faster than what I really should have been because I just wanted to get ahead and get started with my life, you know? Yep. Um, and I didn't care for authority too much back then. Even my parental authority, there's times where I challenged my parents on a lot of different things. And I'm like, look, 
I'm a lot more mature than you realize. And you let me do these things and I'm going to continue to go do these things. And when I was 14, I had a job and I not stopped working since. I mean, I have, whether I went to school and I was in sports and then I went to a job afterwards. I mean, every given minute of my day was involved in doing something other than eating and sleeping. I mean, I was working and I was just consumed. I was like, I want to make money. You know, money is what success is and I need it. And I want to do these things. And if I don't, I don't have these things, you know, and, and my parents weren't able to provide for me, you know, as much as they would like to. I mean, I had a roof over my head and food on the table, but that was it. I mean, you know, when I showed up on a sports team and all these kids had these brand new $120 pair of shoes, I had a pair of $50 Walmart shoes, you know, and as a kid, you've, it, it hurts. Oh, you, you envy know? that. And you feel less of yourself. That. Big time. Yeah. You're like, you want yeah. those freaking shoes, you know, yeah. like, a, yeah. you know, when I sell kids showing, showing up to practice with brand new baseball bats and stuff, you know, and they're $200 a piece. And I'm like picking up the one out of the bag that the coach brought, you know, and yeah. I'm using a glove that, you know, was handed me down. Um, you know, and there was just things like that. And it just got embarrassing, you know, and I just didn't want to be a part of that. And I needed to get on with my life, you know, and, and they helped me do that a little bit. Um, and I kind of had to grow up, you know, and I will tell you when I stopped though, I always had this awareness, right? I always had this awareness. that I was going to join the military and I had a lot of respect for my grandparents, probably more so that if I did something wrong and my mother told my grandfather, he would call me outside and we, he would say, he, he, he's an older guy. He never went to the bathroom inside. He always <laughs> went and said he's walking the dog and want to go outside and pee on a tree <laughs> he was a great guy but uh, he would say come outside with me for a minute he's like your mom told me and then he would say what he she told him and he's like is that true and i'm just bowing my head down you know and yeah and that's all he had to say that's it that's how much presence he commanded in my life like all i would have to do is know that he knew and he can just say, I heard. And I'm like, oh, man. And I just, it hurt me to disappoint him. Yeah. And, it, it, and I, he didn't need to put a hand on me. He didn't need to say anything to me after that. It hurt so bad because he was disappointed. Because he was my hero. And, it, and it's important not to underestimate um, pride. And I mean that in a sense of making someone you care for yeah. proud. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, so, so that individual in your life, you know, like mm -hmm. had, um, not, not, a, not flawless, but you know, like in, in your, in, uh, the way you picture, mm. you know, like yeah. a, an adult, you represented that, that flawless representation mm. of, of, you know, like the mm. adult or the older or the elders. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, and feeling that feedback of pride mm -hmm. of that, person or any of those elders that you you respect and you you look up to um this is so freaking powerful you know like yeah. it is it has you know like you just said it you know like just by hearing that that man saying mm -hmm. have you said those things you knew that you know like <laughs> yeah you got me i'm done you know i'm like uh, and i disappointed him you know and a lot of it was is I was giving my character away and he was trying to tell me that he's like, you know, you, it takes you a lifetime to earn your character, yep. but it only takes you a second to give it away and nobody can take it from you. You give it away. And that's what I kind of learned from him in those situations. 
It's just like, I'm kind of disappointed in you today. You kind of gave your character away a little bit, you know? And I'm like, man, you know, and, you know, a lot of it was last name, you know, you have a lot of pride in your last name and I had a lot of pride in my last name and, um, cause it's Ingalls now and that's, he was his last name. You know, that was my birth name, you know, my birth, it was Ingalls. And, uh, I hate doing things that just tarnish that yeah. name, you know, because I have so much pride for him and pride, you know, and cause he said, tell me the stories of my family as they came across the ocean to the United States in the late 1600s, you know, and how they were one of the first ones over here and kind of helped, you know, go through the frontier and some of the first white settlers west of Allegheny mountains and, you know, and the story, you know, of all that stuff and going to the Ohio Valley and, you know, to where they, you know, are at now in Bond County, Illinois. And, that, I mean, carries straight, straight, straight that carries a load. That carries, yeah, right? that carries a load. Yeah. Family legacy, right? Yep. And so whenever you make a mistake and you're like, I was like, oh man, I tarnished the family name. Wow. <laughs> I put a dent in the universe, you know? <laughs> <laughs> where did so, the, where did the, um, joining the army seed got planted, uh, into yeah. you? Yeah. Those so my grandmother and my grandfather were both like that. My grandfather didn't talk to me about it so much, but he did talk about the Navy a little bit. And he did tell me, you know, he's like, I regret getting out of the Navy. He's like, I don't regret meeting your grandmother and having seven children, you know, and I don't regret all you guys, but he's like, I had a great time while I was in the Navy. And if they would have just let me off that damn ship that I was on and put me on another one, cause it was a command ship. So he had to do a lot of ceremonies and a lot of other stuff. He was going to put me on any other ship in the fleet and I wouldn't have cared but they wouldn't take me off that one. So they told me to get out of the Navy. And so I got out of the Navy. I was just, be, you know, I was just being a pompous, butt, you know, yep. I was just, you know, just being a, you know, a 21 year old kid. That was just like, you know what? Fine. I'll just get out and leave. And he went home and got married and had kids. And um, he's like, I loved it. He's like, I had a great time in the Navy and the camaraderie, the spirit, the core, the, the brotherhood that I had while I was there. He's like, I miss it every single day. Um, he told me that. And I was, I always thought about that too. Every time it came time for me to sign a new contract, I always thought about that, you know, and I'm like, he said he regretted getting out. He just doesn't regret having a family, but he did regret, you know, ending it when he did, um, for stupid reasons. Um, and I'm like, I don't want to regret that. So I always stayed and that's why I stayed 23 years. No, Um, but but what my question was, you know, they were very, very, very powerful. You know, always told me since I was a young child that, Hey, you need to join the military. You need to do something with your life. And this is an opportunity that's going to be there for you. And you're probably not going to get a scholarship. You're probably not going to go play sports for some college. And you're probably not going to get an academic scholarship. So they're going to pay for your college. It's a great resource. We promote it. We want it. You know, it's been great to our family. And this is something that you need to go do. And they put all, they, 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 they put them seeds in my head all the time. Since I was probably about eight, nine years old. Wow. Yeah. So that was so that was almost like a um you know like walking in the family gene path of Yeah, I call it the family business, right? The military <laughs> service is the family business and most of us most of us have served at least 3 or 4 years. You know, and there's very few of us have stayed, you know, till 20 or 23 and retired. But uh um most of us, you know, put our time in at some point. And so like a, a, a two facet question, but mm-hmm. the first one is, you know, like how was your substance abuse dealt with when you, when you join in? And the yeah. second would say, would be in that 23 years, you know, like what conflicts and what situation, and there must be mm-hmm. countless, but you know, like, um, have you covered? Because that was, 
how many years ago? Uh, how many years ago? What you left? You 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 retired from the army? Yeah, this past year. So yeah, so year. so past twenty two yeah. years. There's yeah. a shit tons of stuff that happened. Yeah. in our yeah. in our oh, yeah. you know. Oh like, yeah, definitely. So I mean, you know, yeah. So how I dealt with it, right, was um. I was fortunate to have a really good mentor. Uh, his name was Dave Harris, and he was a brand new teacher in the school. And uh, uh, he asked me to join the wrestling team. And I you didn't want to do nothing with it. You know, it's Greco-Roman wrestling, you know. Uh, I was kind of the macho guy, you know, like, why would I want to wrestle around on a mat with a bunch of sweaty dudes, you know? Uh, Makes sense. <laughs> you know, I'm like, no, man, you're crazy. And he's like, oh, come out and try it. You know, he's like, if you don't like it in a week, you know, he's like, just quit. Nobody's going to, I won't, nobody's going to say anything. He's like, and if they do, they can come talk to me about it. You know, I was like, just try it. And I'm like, fine, whatever. You know, and my dad or my stepdad at the time, he's like, yeah, 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 you should do this. You know, I think it's a good idea. Um, and he lived through me through some sports and stuff too. So that's about the only time I saw him around was when I was in sports. So I'm like, okay, well fine. You know, yep. um, I'll do that. And, uh, I got into it and I really actually liked it. And I knew like, well, high school sports, I do drug tests. So, and I thought to myself, cause this is where I said earlier that I had a little bit of awareness, even though I was in a drug state doing stupid stuff, I had a little awareness of like, okay, well I'm going to have to join the army. And I have this opportunity to wrestle and get back into sports a little bit. And army, drugs, and sports, they all don't mix. So I need to stop. And I stopped. Wow. I just stopped. I was like, I just, you know, and and I replaced drugs with sports and working. And so I was, you know, working at different places at the time, restaurants and things like that, washing dishes. And everybody was concerned I was working too much, doing too much. and I was, I was falling asleep in class because I was working so hard. I was playing sports, um, trying to get through class. And teachers were always telling on me to my coach. And my coach is like, are you dropping too much weight? And I'm like, no, I'm not. Because he was against dropping weight. He was like, if you want to, that's fine. But if it starts to affect your school, yeah, I'm cutting you off. That was his thing. He did not encourage kids to lose weight He's because you're growing. And he acknowledged that. And he told us, like, you're growing. You don't need to be trying to lose weight. Now, if you lose five or 10 pounds, it's probably not going to hurt you. But he's like, I don't want to see the health effects of it. If I start to see those health effects, then I'm going to cut you off and you're, I'm going to bump you up. Which and is so, opposite of what we hear of wrestling coach. Right. because yeah, the, the, these, completely opposite. He, abs- was, he was a great guy. And he there was times where I didn't have a ride home or a ride to practice. And he would pick me up on the weekends and swing by my house, pick me up. And, you know, he took care of his students and his players. Hey, I mean, if I had problems in school, he would be there to go talk to the teachers about my problems, you know, to iron it out, you know, and come back to me and say, hey, I had a conversation with her and this is what we discussed and this is what you're going to do now because he would go in and negotiate for us. But it wasn't always easy. He didn't give us the easy way out, but he would give us a better option. And so he he pretty much took care of us. Um, so he allowed us to get away with some stuff, you know, but there was a lot of bonding that was going on on that team and he created that type of environment. So so he was that transition to right. to you. Yeah, he helped me for, a lot. For your- um, he didn't know he didn't know about my past. I'm sure he kind of had an idea that, you know, I was hanging out with this crowd and he probably didn't know how deep of it I was involved or what I was doing. And he probably knew that some of us were drinking off and on here and there because yep. the drinking never stopped. Just the drugs did. 
Um, I remember I did drugs once or twice after that first year I wrestled. And then I was so scared after that, the anxiety, like I'm going to get caught because they're going to test me. And so I I just, I was like, I I didn't do it after that. Um, And that was the last time I actually done uh, illegal drugs. Um, Never again. And that was, I'm what, 40. So that would have been 24 years ago, maybe 34 years ago, something like that. Yeah. So I can't, I'm not doing the math in my head. So I was, I'm 40 now and that was 16. So that was it. So the next, the following year you join in. Yeah. So when I was 17, I joined the military, um, went to basic training my junior year in the military. Um, cause in the summer between your junior and senior year, you can go to basic training, come back, finish school, and then go back off to you know, your specialty training, uh, that the following summer after your senior year. And I stayed at home for a year. I was still drinking like a fish, um, running around, acting like a fool, drinking and driving, got in car accidents, but while I was drinking and driving and covered it up, um, you know, things like that. So alcohol was a major, major, major factor in my life. And it remained a major factor, um, for, for quite a while. Um, and, uh, it was just what was acceptable. I watched my grandfather drink all day. He would come home from work, crack open a beer and he, it's all he would drink until he passed out on the couch at eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night. Now he was never a violent drunk. He was just a sociable drinker and he would just sit there and drink old Milwaukee throughout the day. And I mean, he was never violent. He never did anything wrong to anybody. He never did anything bad. He was just, that's what he did. Yeah. He drank like a fish, you know, and until he had a massive heart attack and almost killed him, he quit cold turkey. (laughs) (laughs) So that scared the lights out of him. He stopped smoking and he stopped drinking like right out of the hospital. Never touched another uh, substance again after that. And he lived seven more years. He was down to 10% of his heart left. So how... And, and, you know, like the, the image that's portrayed of the army life mm-hmm. as nothing to help someone that no. likes booze. <laughs> no, it doesn't. I mean, when I was, when I was, uh, my kid was, I think I have my son, my first son, he was about two or three years old. I was off at some training in uh, Fort Jackson, South Carolina, and I had just passed my second test. And that was like the big test, you know, and after that, you've made it. You, you got three more exams after that, but they're easy. And so I went out to celebrate and um, had a few drinks and I don't remember the rest of the evening. All I remember is a state trooper knocking on my window in the morning while I'm pulled over on the side of the road and asked me what I had been doing. And um, obviously there was puke down the inside and the outside of my truck. So it was obvious of what was going on. And, uh, asked me if I would take a breathalyzer. And, um, the only thing that saved me right at that time was I kept saying, I don't remember what happened. Cause I pretty much blacked out. Um, and, uh, my nose is bloody. So I must've gotten in a fight at some point, you know? And, uh, he said, you know, we got reports that somebody was driving up and down this highway and they were running people off the roads. So I almost killed people that night. And, wow. uh, I ended up spending, uh, you know, if if I hadn't done enough drugs, I was never going to do drugs again after uh, this incident because um, he asked me to do a breathalyzer and I blew, um, did the sobriety test and uh, he put me in a car and took me to jail and put me in a cell with a heroin addict. Um, And so I got that experience in the morning, you know, when I woke up and uh, um, and so I ended up getting bailed out by a bails bondsman. 
And uh, I went and called my uh, first sergeant uh, and uh, in the army, which is like the senior enlisted guy. And uh, I told him, I said, Hey, I got in some trouble, man. I says, uh, I screwed up, you know, I messed up. Um, I don't know what to do, you know? And he's like, okay, well, he's like, let them know at the school and they're probably sending you home on Monday. And that's exactly what they did. Um, so what I did was, is um, I ended up going to a lawyer before I left the city and uh, I hired a lawyer for about 1500 bucks and he reviewed my case. And the only reason I did not get charged or well convicted of a dr- driving under the influence is because nobody could determine how I got there. And there was no witnesses that came forward to say that they actually saw me driving because at the time in South Carolina, the law stated something to the effect of the officer has to catch you in the act of driving. Not it doesn't has nothing to do with the keys in the car, the keys in the ignition. It was just they have to see the wheels on the vehicle moving. And I was parked on the side of the road. And when he asked me my testimony, I just kept telling him, I don't remember. So he's like, they got nothing. And so he's like, I got you off for fifteen hundred bucks. So I skated by by the skin of my teeth on that one. Um, did I didn't that, drink first. Yeah. What's that? Did, did that serve as a lesson you were about to answer? Sorry. Yeah, no, it did for a little bit. I was cold turkey for about six months and then I started drinking again. <laughs> so it scared me, yeah. scared me for about six months and I was scared, you know, and my, my ex-wife at the time, or well, my wife at the time, she's my ex-wife now, uh, was extremely mad at me because she had a cousin that had died from a drunk driver. Um, and I knew I was screwing up. I knew. I mean, and I, I didn't think alcohol had that much control over me. And that's probably why I went back. And probably the only reason why I didn't drink for six months is probably because I was scared to get caught drinking and the repercussions from my leadership because they would have probably um, and they had threatened me. They, they said, look, we, you, we know you're a good guy. You're a hard worker and you have what it takes. But. We're not going to let this go unscathed and we're going to write you a reprimand. And if we're going to put it in the top drawer and if you do anything, anything that's out of line, we're going to pull it out and we're going to make sure that um, you get what's coming to you. And so we're going to give you this chance. So, so basically it was on like a verbal probation um, and a few phone calls were made to kind of make sure that, you know, my record at school um, wasn't tarnished and that uh, I was just removed for disciplinary action versus something, you know, other than that. And so there was really no record of what, what really had happened. So the leadership kind of took care of me. Um, and, uh, that's the back in the day when that, that really could happen. And so, um, I continued on and I started drinking again, six months later, and that continued until I, I got divorced. Um, and I continued to drink like crazy. Even after my divorce, it got worse. Um, I was drinking quite a bit. Um, and, uh, that continued for a while. Um, and I had a pretty serious back injury too, for a while, um, that I was dealing with. And I think some of the alcohol was, uh, used to subdue the pain from this back injury. So I have two herniated discs in my neck. And I also now have uh, a couple summers ago, two from in my lower back. And I was, I think I, you know, for the most part, I was drinking the alcohol, kind of trying to kind of subdue some of the pain, uh, and then at some point, um, the pain got so bad after I got married a second time that I was actually taking prescription drugs on top of whiskey. So I moved from beer to whiskey. And uh, the first thing I would do when I went home was I would drink whiskey. Um, and uh, I would drink two or three, even four glasses. Um, I, would, I, would, I would go through a bottle of whiskey um, 
in a couple of days, you know, and um, I was just popping the pills as many painkillers as I can take just to get through the day. Um, and I think there was, I had a lot of emotional pain inside of me too, at the time that I was dealing with that, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't really allowing to come out. And so, uh, at some point in time, I did realize that I was, you know, I was like enough is enough, you know, and, um, I need to get my life on track. And as soon as I started having that conversation with my mother about who my father was, um, and then as soon as I really started taking my spirituality, uh, seriously. Um, and I started feeling guilty a little bit about it and actually went to some counseling for a while. Um, some therapy, um, I was actually serving and you shouldn't be an alcoholic and taking prescription drugs, but I was actually serving as a, a sexual assault response coordinator for the military. Um, you know, basically I was a program manager for victims who had been um, raped or sexually assaulted or sexually harassed. Um, and, and at the uh, same at the same time, Kirby, this was yeah, probably the, the most. I was, I was functional. I was a hundred percent functional, doing all these very important jobs because I still felt passion and purpose for what I did, and I cared about what I did. I just the substances is what you know kind of soaked everything up for me, and then it was kind of like when I started to get to wean myself off the substances that I really needed the counseling, and I actually got diagnosed with alcohol induced anxiety. Um, by the therapist and uh, I still don't really get it or understand that um, I did have a little anxiety probably not as much as I did back then um, and maybe that's because of the amount of substances I was on um, you know the, the alcohol and the prescription drugs um, but I wasn't getting the medical care either at the time that I needed and which was why I was in more pain and so I have these bouts where the pain comes back and then I have to fight the pain and if I don't get medical care right away then I was left with my own devices. And that's kind of why I started doing the prescription drugs and the alcohol or the, the hard liquor, at least. So the therapy, I worked with a therapist for a little bit. Um, and, uh, uh, and I was actually in, you know, this is, this is even funnier, right? Um, it's not really funny, but uh, it's crazy. I was in a master's in counseling at Liberty university and, um, I had to go to, and you know, I was pursuing counseling and I drinking <laughs> alcohol and substance abuse and, uh, prescription drug substance abuse. And I had to go to AA classes and, uh, I had to go to four actually. Um, and I had to, re you know, monitor, you know, group discussion and facilitation because that was part of counseling is group facilitation. And I just had to take notes and, you know, not, not necessarily take notes on the people, but you know, how the meeting was going, yep. what I saw went well, what didn't go well, you know, and they were open mic nights too. So, um, people would get up there and say, say some, some stuff and I, I'm sitting there going, if you don't stop, this is going to be you. And, and, and I got in a car accident one night, um, because my head was in all kinds of different places and it like rattled my head so bad. It took me about six months to recover from it. Um, cognitively, you know, and, uh, and at that point I was like, okay, enough's enough. And I stopped doing the prescription drugs. Um, and, uh, I tailored the alcohol down just to, uh, you know, socially once or twice, you know, on the weekend, uh, one or two drinks. And, uh, that's the way it's been ever since. Um, you know, when you face death a few times, you know, and, and you, you face the destruction of your entire life. Um, so, so, so many times, I think I realized that, uh, my nine lives are almost up. So yep. 
I better do something with the last one I got. And so that's kind of where I've been at now for the most part. You know, I've taken my my degree uh, master's in counseling and I've been getting to work with fatherless men who feel like they're not good enough and they don't have what it takes. And they're going through all the same stuff that I went through. Um, I've even started working with guys that have been in depressive states that want to commit suicide because I found myself in that depressive state at one point in time where I wanted to take my own life, you know, and when I was going through all my marital problems and drinking like a fish, you know, and I didn't have good mentors and, you know, examples around me. Um, and, uh, I, I, you know, I was like, you know what, I, I got to do something about this, you know, and, you know, there's, um, you know, they say 22 veterans a day take their own life. But what I've really come across this last month was a astounding, um, statistic that says that, uh, uh, 60 men a minute, commit suicide across the globe, you know, and, and a lot of that has to do with depression, alcohol, you know? Um, and when I look at the fatherless men statistics, um, I became almost a victim of the fatherless men syndrome, but I consider myself, you know, uh, uh, somebody who has emerged triumphantly. And that's because majority of the fatherless men end up in prison. Majority of them are involved in domestic violence, drug abuse, alcohol abuse. Um, majority of them end up committing suicide uh, or the majority of the men that do commit suicide are fatherless. And majority of the boys that commit mass shootings in America are from fatherless homes. And I'm That's like, crazy. I could have been one of those. I was so close so many times to being one of those kids um, that, uh, it's too important to sit here and just be like, okay, well, I'm done with all that and I'm going to move on with my life. Now it's like, I have to do something about this. Now I have to make a difference. Now I have to take all the experience and all the things that I feel like God has put me on. You know, he's, I've been on this path, right? And I've gone through all these experiences and you know, this exposure because I understand the pain. I've been there. I've felt it. You know, so I think that, and I personally believe, and I've wrote about this recently, where if you, uh, if, if you can, if you can, it's hard for somebody to help somebody that doesn't understand or have experienced the kind of pain that that person's gone through. It's really hard to know what that person needs, but mm -hmm. if you've gone through that, you know exactly what they need and you can connect on a different level and you can really, really, really help those people. And, uh, I think that's important that a lot of folks that have gone through these addictions and these challenges in their lives, um, turn around and give back. And, and some of that experience that came when, uh, uh, I was at Fort Myer, Virginia, and I was working with the sexual assault victims. And I attended a couple of classes. One was from the Samaritan woman uh, who worked with victims of human trafficking women. Um, and uh, and what happened, what she noticed was and what she's really been pushing in, in, in the political uh, realm is support. It's the follow on support. We're always about get the, you know, get get the perpetrator, get him, get him, get him, you know, put him into court, throw him in jail. But then once you do that. What happens to the victims? They don't Absolutely. have the support and the structure afterwards to help them find some kind of normalization. And, you know, if you remember earlier, I said I probably did most of that stuff because I wanted to feel normal. And she said a lot of them go back to human trafficking because that's their normal. Nobody, there's no support services. There's nothing except a bunch of nonprofits. They're barely scraping some money together trying to support these ladies, trying to find a new normal. And you think about that, and I was like, I, after all that, putting all that together and connecting all those dots, I was just like, this is my mission now. Yeah. This is my path. 
And there is, you know, like the, there is something that, you know, like you, you just talked about victims of, you know, like the mm-hmm. sexual abuse and, you know, like, uh, harassment. Um, you, you know, like the, the, we can't, um, you, you can't replace a father, no. uh, you know, like, so, so, um, mom can do, you know, like 120% of what they can, but it won't take you know, like the place that a father has in a, in a, in a child's and even in an adult life, you know? Yeah. So, um, there is something about that, you know, like, so, uh, you know, like I've seen grandfathers trying to do that. And then, you know, like, mm-hmm. and even though you need great role models, mm-hmm. you know, you need positive role models and masculine yeah. positive role models. Yeah. Um, but there is, you know, there's definitely something about that, that, you know, like you, 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 you yeah. cover right now that, um it yeah i mean it can't be replaced you know like so so yeah it's hard you know i tried to replace that so when i was my first marriage i had a stepson he was about five years old and his father wasn't part of his life so i thought you know growing up without a father i know what this kid needs and i i really i mean i really did it right and i thought i knew how to be a father but i never had a father growing up so i didn't have that demonstrated for me right and i didn't realize at the time you know what my grandfather was trying to teach me through example until after my grandfather was pretty much almost gone right um and then uh, the lessons that he was teaching started you know i was mature enough and i was sober enough to actually you know kind of understand what was you know what my eyes had recorded you know um and uh you know i screwed that relationship up with him you know, and, and now I have my kids, you know, and uh, I treat, you know, I have four kids and I have one on the way in January. And um, congratulations. Yeah. Four boys and one little princess. And every day, man, I, I have to hug and kiss my kids, you know, and um, hold them and, and, and talk to them. And uh, I just have to connect, you know, and, you know, and I read this book called by Tony Evans called Kingdom Man. And one of the things that was most profound to me was, is he said, um, a father should, and, and, you know, and if you don't have a father in the home, you know, maybe it's a healthy male role model or figure, but, but, uh, they should, they should have so much presence that whenever they're gone, say they have to leave for three or four days on a business trip or something else happens and they're away and they can't be there that night. They should have so much presence that if the family runs across the challenge at the dinner table and they don't, you know, and he's not there to help them solve that, that they know what he would say, even if they couldn't get a hold of him. Yep. They should know. And that you have that, that much presence and leadership in the home that they, they understand like, this is what needs to get done because this is what dad would have done. Or this is what our father would have said. And they know. And even if he'd gone, you know, I mean, like say, say, say he passes, you know, like my grandfather's dad at nine years old, his dad probably had enough presence in his life that she had 14 children. My grandfather had 14 brothers and sisters. And that woman had to be the strongest woman in the world, but he had to have enough presence for them kids to know exactly what they needed to do and carry on with their life and continue to run that farm. So, and, and, and but, there are 14 kids. So but at, at the same time, Kirby, you just said it, you know, like it, yeah. when you described, you know, like that conversation yeah. outdoor, yeah. taking a walk with your grandfather, mm-hmm. that's exactly yeah. it. You know, like yeah. even today and some of the decisions you make, you know exactly what your grandfather's response would be. You know, like either you like you want to turn right or left or take that decision or yeah. that. Yeah. He has he's had imprinted such a uh 
you know, like a like a pattern of decisions and and values and honors and and all mm-hmm. that that you know exactly you know like what what his response would be, which is you know like I, I can even make a parallel to what great sponsoring is. Mm-hmm. You know, like the the my sponsor, and I tell that to you know like he's been sponsoring me for over thirteen years. You know, like almost mm-hmm. fourteen years, um, and uh, some asked me like you, you don't call him as often as you know like you used to so mm-hmm. i called him this morning and you know like yeah. and after half an hour i realized that i knew all the freaking answers yeah you do right <laughs> you know like so, so you know and that's what you know while you're sitting here talking i was thinking about that right you know and you see all these movies right or these shows or whatever and and somebody goes to call and some of them are reality tv and somebody goes to call their sponsor and they can't get a hold of the sponsor and then they end up going ahead and doing whatever they, you know, um, participating in the drugs. I was watching some kind of documentary where a guy could go to the sponsor and ended up, um, you know, relapsing. Yep. And I'm like, but that's, I think sponsors have to have that kind of presence too, you know, Imprints. any type of figure like mentor, coach, leader, you know, father, whatever, you know, and it doesn't have to be a masculine, but, anybody right and that's one of the things i probably you just have to have that much presence in somebody's life that they know like what you would say and what you would do you know in those situations to where when they aren't there and they aren't available because we can't be available 24 7 it's really hard even though we got all this technology um things are going to happen right technology is not you know uh it can go down and things can happen phones go dead i mean it's just the way it is but uh uh you know, even that, I mean, it's just, it's, 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 it's such a powerful relationship. The only thing that I probably regret in my life is I spent so much time abusing substances and at the bottom of a bottle that I missed opportunities to develop those kind of relationships along the way, because I, that bottle or that the bottom of that bottle or the, that, that substance was, was that was what, you know, with me replacing those relationships that I needed in, in but it builds time. But it built Kirby, the inspiration that you're becoming, yeah. you know, like, so, so it's, it's for me, it's just a catch 22. And I think, uh, I was about to say while you were talking that, you know, like, this is the main, I think the main difference between inspiration and influence, um, where inspiration, you, you know, like you, you, you feel that you have to follow through. Uh, while influence is just pretty much like a bit of, you know, like the tension mm-hmm. that you can, you can have, but, um, I, I would, you know, like I, I have, sometimes I have the same thought process about, you know, like, did I waste all that time using, mm-hmm. uh, and I had, you know, like I had my, my two older child, um, and I was still using and, um, there's, there's some part of regret for sure. But at the same time, they were pretty much the building blocks of. Yeah. who i've who i've became later and um they 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 make us stronger and my guess is you know like better human beings because mm-hmm. we we overcame those obstacles and 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 now we can share you know like our our experience of how we overcame them and you know it became pretty much inspiration for others and i i say that in such an humble matter because i mm-hmm. you know like in no way i would you know, <laughs> in no way i would dare saying you know like that i, I inspire you know, like for which is 
fuck that you know like i, I mean <laughs> <laughs> that's not that's not the yeah, purpose and in the intention but you know like there's obviously you know like that even for me so i have two older child and one he's four-year-old yeah. and i know that i'm a much better dad for him yeah than i probably was for my older child oh and, yeah definitely i mean hands down i've become a better father with each child I mean, exactly. I, I, yeah. And, and each one of them are unique in their own ways. And I've actually picked up on each one's individual needs now and I can cater to that, you know, yep. and it's special because, um, before, you know, when I had my other son, you know, he's 16 now and, uh, he was five, you know, and my stepson, I treated him equally, you know, and I didn't know that because I was just so out of it at the time. I was just like, I'm going to be the way I am and I'm not going to change. And this is the way it is. And this is the law, <laughs> but I wasn't willing to put myself in that situation and say, well, look what you're doing. Yeah. You know? And, uh, I just didn't see my ways back then. And now I do. Um, and I, you know, go to your point though. I think that everything that we've been through builds men of character. Right. Um, yep. cause I always like to tell the story. So one of the things I learned in counseling was a technique called narrative therapy Narrative therapy is a guy by the name of Michael White in the 70s created this out of Australia. And uh, it's to help rewrite your story. You know, stop allowing other people to tell your story and you tell your story in a way that empowers you. And so I talk to a lot of guys, you know, when we talk about fatherlessness and addiction and suicide and some of this other stuff, I tell them to, to rewrite it, you know, rewrite it in a way that makes you, tr you know, become triumphant out of tragedy. You know, um, you've overcome these things, right? Whether it's yep. cold turkey or you had to have help or whatever, you've overcome these obstacles. Tell the story. You're the hero of your own story. And you have an opportunity to inspire other people. You know, those are character building opportunities. And if you're afraid to be vulnerable and say, hey, I'm human being and I make mistakes and I'm not perfect. Well, then there's probably something wrong with that person. <laughs> absolutely yeah and and so, and it, you're right you're they're like hiding they're, something they're hiding something if you walk through this life and you think you're squeaky clean you're probably hiding something because none of us are perfect so and and this is you know like it, i've i've just listened to uh an interview that a, a guy named dave leduc which is like a guy from from my region that became a champion of let way which is like a super um like a, a mma but on you mm -hmm. know like like with no rules and there's ed bots and you know like it's crazy but you know like the guy actually got kicked out of of his home because he, he with with a father conflict and by few years later he ends up in thailand and you know like a, became a thai boxer and yeah. but you know like there is really two approaches to overcoming obstacles you know like you, you know like you can yeah. complain about it all your life yeah. sit on it and just like mm -hmm. pour you and pour me and you know I, yeah i tell people stop being the victim exactly you have to or you're it's stuck in place it's a mindset it's a victim yeah. mindset and it, you know and i learned that when i was working with victims of sexual assault you know and a lot of them women you know some of them you know and in men too there's men i worked with um a lot of them were like don't call me a victim you know i i you know, and, and it was all about gaining their power back, yep. gaining their power base back. 
you know, if you're a victim, you have no power, you know, you're, you're in that mindset. Right. And, you know, some people, you, you are a victim for a period of time, right? You have to go through that process. For sure. For but sure. At some point you, you make a shift, you pivot and with the right support and the right people behind you and the right resources, you can pivot and you can start to make a difference. Right. And you can start to return to some kind of normal way of life. And, you know, you'll never be normal again. Right. You're never going to get that back. But as a scarred, as a scarred human being, you know, like, yeah, that's why I say it's character building. I mean, it's you have scars. And so a lot of soldiers, you know, I mean, we say we have scars because those are war stories. Right. Those are stories, you know, and and, you know, my kids ask me about all my scars on my arm and I have stories to tell. But I mean, that's the concept. Right. There's a reason there's a there's a great analogy or visual uh, love. Right. And it's there's a reason why the rearview mirror in a car is so small and the windshield so big. (laughs) Right. Your future's in front of you. Right. I love it. it. Yeah. Your rearview mirror is so small because you just look back and say, okay, that's where I came from. But this is where I'm going. Right. Wow. I love it, Kirby. Yeah, it's amazing, man. I mean, I've heard that and I picked it up and I was like, oh, it was like it made my chest fall out. You know, when you just I got it stolen, like, Kirby. <laughs> just, just call it stolen. <laughs> One step at a time. And that's what I told myself. That's why I'm an ultra runner, right? I've replaced some of my addictions. We were, you know, talking and, you know, I became an ultra runner. You know, I started running, you know, and that passes the time it also clears my head and allows me to think and it's also good for my back and a lot of other things people are like how's ultra running running 26 or running 31 miles 31 to 50 miles good for your back and it has a lot to do with posture and um the way i do it and stuff like that but um and i also do it for veterans who have lost their lives to ptsd so i'm memorializing people as i run and helping them continue their legacy on but uh you know, I, like I said, I, you know, you, you run and you do these things. And, and I tell myself when I run, it's just like, you've been here before. It's just one foot in front of the other. That's it. All you got to do is get to that next tree and then get to that next tree and get to that next pole and get over this hill and go down through this valley. You know, and it's just one little goal at a time. And it's just like, a, and, and even when I'm in the worst situation where I'm like, oh man, I, you know, um, I remember when I stopped running for about four years, you know, and I returned back to ultra running again. Um, and I went to that first race and it was a 31 mile race and I wanted to quit like 32 times. I mean, in my head, I was like, okay, I'm going to quit. I'm, I'm here's comes an aid station. I'm going to stop up here and I'm going to be done. I'm going to tell them dropping. And I was just like, you know what? Nope. I made it. Let me try one more. And I was like, as soon as I'd start again, I'm like, oh man, I'm going to quit at the next one. And then, you know, I'm just, you got to get, keep fighting those, we call it, sometimes I call it real-time resiliency. It's a boxing match, right? You just got to knock those negative thoughts out of your mind. You know, it's like a boxing match. You just got to show up and you got to, you got to do what you've been trained to do. And that's, you know, pound out those negative thoughts. Kirby, I have to thank you. You know, like uh, every single episode, I say the same thing. You know, like I'm, I'm a nobody from yeah. North. It's, 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 I think it's going to be falling too feet plus of snow this night but you know anyways like i'm i'm further from i'm far from all of my guests right now i'm I'm kind of in a you know in a wave of interviewing and 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 talking with people that are either down south or i spoke to someone from uk last week and and um but i I'm so humbled and flattered and honored in having you guys as guests and um it was it was a pleasure talking with you and that rearview mirror 
it's gonna be borrowed and stolen from you forever i'm 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 just i just got my brain this thing just burned down in my brain and you know i could uh, help you and for having me on the show then you know at least i gave you a little nugget (laughs) oh you gave me plenty but that one is is a powerful image and uh where can we find you kirby you know like i i saw a bit of your website but tell 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 my listeners you know like where we can find you yeah, you can go to uh, www.kirbyingles.com and that's K-I-R-B-Y-I-N-G-L-E-S, just like it is, kirbyingles.com. Um, you can go there and check me out. There's links to all my social media sites, but uh, normally I do some Facebook Lives every night between 6 and 8, and I talk about all kinds of things, everywhere from mentoring to coaching um, and just different things like that, so... Awesome. So I'm going to be adding the links and all of the links that you send my way mm-hmm. to the description of the episode, which can be will be found pretty much anywhere like Anchor, which hosts my podcast, but Google, Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, you know, like so. So it's going to be available everywhere. Um, thanks again for your time, Kirby. It was a pleasure and an honor. And especially today for uh, Veterans Day, you know, like that our timing couldn't be better. So yeah. Uh, Thanks for your service and uh, take care. All right, you too, buddy. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.